Greetings again, everyone. How relevant is the work we are doing to the world out there, to what is happening all around us? All of us in this room are very well aware of the deep global economic malaise, of the stock market crash, of the resultant roller coaster ride of stock markets all around the world. Some, perhaps in my audience of the more than 2,000 people who will be hearing this sermon, have experienced the loss of many thousands of dollars. Some of my personal acquaintance have done so as a result of the vagaries of the stock market based upon the whims, the caprice, perhaps the fears and the worries of a comparatively small handful of very, very greedy men who are dealing with such things as the possibility of rising interest rates, a slowdown in business, consumer fears, and a slowdown in spending, and worried very much about the American trade imbalance and the huge government spending or deficits that we deal with all the time. We're worrying about the sea of red ink in which the government is about to drown. Some very interesting articles have come out recently in Time, Newsweek, practically all of the magazines that we receive here, the British Economist and several of those from Europe. And of course, very great things are in the offing. For perhaps 30-some years, I've been saying on radio and television that the great tribulation that is prophesied in Matthew 24, where we read of wars and rumors of wars, of drought and famine, of great earthquakes and of great tumultuous global events which are going to be the harbinger of the day of the Lord and eventually the second coming of Jesus Christ, are not going to happen because of some formula or some weird code found in a whistle in a cereal box or some ancient thing out of the uh, Mishnah or Zoroaster's doctrine, or because someone just happens to believe it, but will be very easily traceable through very obvious trends and conditions and events in the world, all of which are going to lead toward a breakdown in political relations between the major trading partners of the world today, going to lead toward a global Great Depression, which will lead toward a rise of despotism and of ultra-right-wing governments trying to satisfy the mobs that take to the street in violent food riots, race riots, riots against the government. Witness what happened in Europe and the United States in the pre-World War II era. The tumultuous upheaval of various people at every conceivable pole of the political spectrum in Spain that led to the Spanish Civil War. There were anarchists, and there were, of course, the royalists, there were the fascists, and there were the communists, and all of these various groups took to the streets with clubs and knives and guns and bombs, and the big powers got involved, we know the history of that, and you can read voluminous amounts of history involved in the Spanish Civil War when Hitler had a chance to try out some of his weaponry ahead of time, when the United States sent increments of troops over there, when many of the big powers got involved on one side or the other, especially the Soviet Union. We know what happened in Germany during the 1930s when a tremendous number of people were out of work. When the runaway inflationary pressures on the, the Reichsmark, as it was called then, were such that the printing presses couldn't even keep up with the devaluation of an increasingly weak German currency. When literally tens of millions of people were out of work and in bread and soup lines when they were starving to death and going out and cutting down trees in the park to keep warm. We know that in the United States, we experienced the stock market crash in 1929, entered a period of tremendous poverty, hardship, and privation. 
When I was a boy, every train that went through Eugene, Oregon was absolutely festooned with what we called then bums, and I learned not to say that in England because it meant something different to the British people it did to us. But when I was on the air in England, they said, please say tramp. But uh, the bums, as we called them, would come and say, can I mow your yard? Can I stack your wood? And of course, that was our job, my brother Dick and I, and we didn't want some of these fellows coming for a bowl of soup, but my mother never turned them away. If there was some odd job to do, she would let them do it and give them a little cup of soup, and off they would go with their little uh, pitiful belongings on their back when a, an enormous percentage of the American working public were simply out of a job. There was no reason to go from Eugene to Portland or from Portland to Seattle or from uh, perhaps St. Louis to Chicago because it was the same everywhere. But they were just searching here and there. When the stock market crashed in 1929, there was a man in the White House named Herbert Hoover. And he did all the right things, or so you would think. He was quite a leader. And I think that perhaps history is finally going to say that he was one of the greatest presidents the United States ever had. If they really peel off all the veneer and all of the blame which they have tended to put on Herbert Hoover for the economic sickness of the United States in that period of time, and really investigate the man. Now, a tremendous avalanche of anti-Reagan, anti-White House, anti-administration propaganda has come out, especially in the Catholic left-wing press like Time magazine in the last very few weeks. Not the least of which are some of the articles in this issue, Who's in Charge, in Time magazine, which is calling for strong leadership and pointing out the kind of a wimpish government, the lame duck, sick government that Reagan currently represents. In a very interesting article by Hugh Seide, addressed to the president, talking about the hands-on manager and basically what is needed today to turn the economy around. I'd like to read excerpts of it to you because it is really quite surprising. He says, the cries for presidential leadership that rose from Wall Street now echo across the country. Here is one formula for the man in the White House in such a crisis. Do this, he says to the president. Summon to Washington the leaders of labor, industry, banking, agriculture, construction, and transportation to get their recommendations and help. Now think about this as to whether it makes sense if you could put yourself in the shoes of the man in the Oval Office, if this would be the way you would perhaps handle a crisis in leadership in our country today. Meet the press within 48 hours, then promise a more intimate relationship with the media. Follow up with press conferences every few days. Set up a 12-hour White House work day. Immerse yourself in the data and details so completely that you can discuss any of the issues with brilliance and complete authority. Line up congressional leaders for support. Later send a message to the entire body. Loosen credit for business and agriculture. Build confidence in the Federal Reserve by praising its efforts to confine the crisis to Wall Street. Wire governors and mayors to keep public projects alive so that there will be no abrupt layoffs. Repeat to all visitors that it's the president's policy in seeking to balance the budget to cut first into business profits before putting any more burden on the wage earners. Call for less expensive government, but without heavy taxes. Send personal envoys to Wall Street to upbraid the worst of the speculators. Then, just to gig them a bit more, refer in conversations to capitalists who are too unprintable, greedy. 
make it stated policy that the job of the government is to keep the, up the quality of American life, and that concern will first be focused on the underprivileged education, housing, and conservation. Write letters to friendly editors asking them to help you awaken the conscience of America to deal with the trouble. When a leading columnist might suggest that by using government so dramatically in the crisis you're interfering with the natural economic law, ignore him. Don't be optimistic, but don't be pessimistic either. Caution against fear. Let the country see you as serene. Go to a World Series game and play it fun but cool. Don't suggest that the crisis may be over when the first good news appears. Don't predict the future in speeches and statements. And don't get overly concerned when reports come in of a drop in the sales of big luxury items like automobiles. Just keep the night lights on in the Oval Office. The only problem with this plan is that it is exactly what Herbert Hoover did in 1929. The economic chaos in the world rolled right on over him, and then history kicked him once he was down. I found that utterly fascinating, because I don't know how to give Ronald Reagan any better advice than that formula for dynamic, visible, powerful leadership in the White House. Some years ago, a friend of mine was in terrible trouble. He'd lost his wife, apparently according to the laws involving inheritances and having to do with her 50% communal property law involving, I guess, the property on which they lived. He had some indebtednesses and so on, and even the funeral charges for his wife's death were such that he was suddenly facing a real economic crisis. He came to me and wanted to borrow $1,500. I didn't have $1,500. Well, can't you take it out of the work? And I said to my friend, but I'm not like my father. I, don't, uh, I can't just give you money out of the work. We, we don't have it. We're a very small little work. This was in 1979. And we don't even have an emergency fund. Well, is there any way you could borrow the money? I'm, I'm really desperate. The man was really emotionally distraught. And it was quite desperate. He was a good friend of mine. Well, let me just see. So I called my banker. And the banker, of course, requires me, as well as Benny Sharp and Guy Carnes, to sign personally for loans on this building. That's common practice among many of the banks these days because even the loan guaranteeing payment of this building in which we sit today must be guaranteed not only by the corporation but by whatever personal assets of corporate officers might be available as well. So the bank kind of says, well, Garner Ted is Garner Ted the evangelist as well as Garner Ted the private citizen with a little house out in Emerald Bay. So I went down there and told the plight of my friend. Well, yeah, we could, we could do that. So I was able to borrow $1,500 on my own signature without any collateral. I didn't even want to take a lien on my property, a second lien on my property. It never entered my mind, because he was my friend, to suggest, now, why don't we go draw up at a lawyer's office a lien on your property so that I have exactly $1,500 worth, a little postage stamp size of your 45 acres out here, on the current fair market value of your acreage so that if you get in trouble I'll be okay. That never occurred to me because he was my friend. Well I began making payments on the loan. He only wanted it for 90 days. 
Six months went by, and I became a little bit concerned. A year went by, and I went down and renegotiated the loan and asked them to extend it out a little bit, so even though I had to pay more interest in the long run, my payments were a little easier to bear. But I ended up paying somewhere around $1,850 or $1,900 to borrow that $1,500. My friend was not my friend anymore. There's something about human nature when you borrow money from someone and they, out of their largesse, give you the money, you don't like them as well as you did. Now, it seems like you'd like them more. It seems like you'd say, now, because they are such a generous, good friend of mine, they gave me this money, it's really a wonderful man, and I want to spend more time with him than before. I'll be anxious to go play golf with him, or come in and play a game of cards with him, or go and have dinner with him, and pick up the phone every now and then and see how he's doing. I never heard from my friend again. Finally, understanding what the laws of bad debts are, I at least documented my friend's non-payment of his obligation by generating a letter to him which said, you know, dear so-and-so, I know it was embarrassing for you to have to ask me for the money. It is equally embarrassing or more so for me to ask for it back. But if you're not going to repay it, could you at least just send me a little note to that effect so that when I decide I don't have to pay in addition to that money, the income tax, that I can actually write it off as a bad debt, that the IRS will not get all upset if they decide to audit my financial records. Of course, that's in my file. It just sits there in case the IRS ever does ask the question. At least I have the fact of non-response to my letter as documentation, and I have the canceled note and all the correspondence that took place during this period of time. A couple of years ago, Brazil defaulted on a gigantic note. Central banks of the United States, Chase Manhattan, some of the big banks in Texas, some of the big banks in Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles are holding an incredible amount of paper up into the many billions of dollars owed by the government of Brazil, loaned by these major banks for development, especially the complete rape of the Mato Grosso in Brazil, the mining adventures of which we have read much, the resettlement of peones and others of the population on that land, and of course the destruction of one of the major ecosystems of the entirety of the earth. As a result, there's a great deal that we have read and heard about that. But in the meantime, Brazil, in a runaway 300% per annum chaotic economic mess, was unable to pay any of its indebtedness. And so the banks decided they would restructure the loan. Now, when you restructure a loan, you lie to yourself. You say, I don't want that to go down as a complete deficit. I can't write it off as a bad loss. So what I will do is just move it over here in the column and say, what we'll do is accept an interest-only payment about five years hence, lower the interest rate, spread it out over another 20, 30, 40 years, and then live under the illusion that this accounts receivable, multi-billion dollar megabuck debt from Brazil is someday, when your grandchild is 89, going to be paid. It's a game the banks play, the international banks. Many international banks have huge columns of gigantic debts on their books that they really know they're never going to be paid. The United States of America has now passed Brazil. We are the biggest debtor nation in the history of mankind. We owe more foreign governments more money than any other nation. The most impoverished, rotten, fetid, squalid, sick, diseased, unemployed, third world country on the face of the earth owes nowhere near so much money as the United States owes our former vanquished enemies 
of World War II, West Germany in the configuration of the common market, and Japan. Now, one way in which we lose by the strong, viable post-World War II resurgence of those great countries is that as their currencies, of course, allowed to float free on the world markets based upon GNP and the industrial performance of each one of the nations, was outstripping the dollar, which gradually has been sliding weaker and weaker during this time, the last few years at least, when new records have been set twice in the last couple of years against the Japanese yen. But if you know the facts about how the federal government itself had to at late night, midnight, stroke of midnight, by the stroke of a pen, of course, borrow more money to keep the, the government itself from going completely bankrupt, how we had to bail out huge cities like Chicago and New York, bail out gigantic companies like GM and Chrysler, bail out gigantic other companies like some of our major airlines and the others, that some of the ways by which we have been kept going are the massive influxes of yen, petrodollars, and euro dollars from Arabs and from European states who have invested heavily multi-billion megabucks in IT&T, IBM, all the big airlines, all the railways, big mining concerns, American timber track leases for 99 years, huge American farms and ranches, American hotels. We know that Japan owns Honolulu. They own all the hotels there, basically maybe one or two American-owned. I'm, I'm not aware of which ones they might be. And we know that these people are invested heavily in the United States, which that influx of foreign capital has kept us going in its artificial economy for some time now. In this issue of Time magazine, our economists suggesting that the dollar may slide by the end of 1988 by another 30%. If you had invested $10 billion in IT&T on the ratio of what your yen purchased in dollars a year ago and then you saw the value of the dollar slide by 30% what have you lost well you've lost 30% of 10 billion dollars what you've lost in the same way that speculators on the stock market found as Walden of the Walton or Walden whatever his name is of Walmart Sam Walden I believe up here in Arkansas lost 1 billion dollars in one day one billion dollars in one day. I have one friend that lost around eight to ten or twelve thousand, not sure, dollars because he bought Walmart stock in his IRA account. His clever broker decided the best way to really cause that IRA to grow is to stick that thing in Walmart because, believe it or not, five years ago, if you had bought into Walmart for eight I'm sorry, for 1000 I think they said $1,800, about five years ago, your Walmart stock before the crash would have been worth about $750,000. If you just knew ahead of time, you could just speculate, let money make money. It just blows your mind, doesn't it? Well, we are in a situation now where the warnings that I have been issuing for many, many years that in many ways we are going to see a bizarre, I can echo my words hundreds of times, repetition of those events which impoverished the American people during the Great Depression, which is going to lead to the impoverishment of Europe and other nations. The modern industrialized nations are going to go down with us. It is going to lead toward the complete overthrow of government after government, the realignment of security arrangements, the emergence of despotism and dictatorships here and there to solve the economic problems, and off we go with nations gearing up for armaments because, of course, the hatred, the animosity, 
the broken promises and shattered hopes and dreams of multiple millions of people and nation after nation who have been enjoying the good life and this great heightened GNP and all the greed and vanity and self-interest and chauvinism and racism and nationalism and the good life that the Japanese we see are enjoying. And on a per capita basis, they actually are better off than the average American. They have a higher per capita ratio of telephones, a higher per capita ratio of television sets and other electronic devices and so on in Japan than they do in the United States of America. The point I want to make is that during the time of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, their message was a relevant message to the now, to the here and now, to the immediate future, as John especially viewed that future from his perspective. And that the work that is going out from Tyler, Texas, the gospel message of the soon coming kingdom of God, has got to be viewed not in the light of ancient Zoroastrianism or of weird speculative religious beliefs or of vague occult philosophies, but in the weekly articles that come out in Time and Life and Newsweek and The Economist with the weekly news we see on television and with what is going to be affecting you and me and the food on our table and the clothing on our backs in the next three, five, seven, nine, take your pick, number of years ahead of us now. This world is not a permanent place. This society is not a permanent society. The last chapter of European history has not been written. John the Baptist is depicted in the Bible as a man who came crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the eternal, of the Lord, and saying the axe is even now laid to the root and the trunk of the tree, and saying to the sinning people during his time, bring forth therefore fruit fitting for, or answering to, proving that you have repented. And we know that his birth was by a miracle, and we know that his six months ministry and more ballooned up to become the biggest thing that had happened until Jesus Christ appeared on the scene and was baptized of John in the River Jordan just south of where it exits from the Sea of Galilee. John the Baptist didn't have the faintest idea what was going to happen to him. John the Baptist was in obscurity until he emerged in Galilee. He had spent his entire youth in the desert. He was a completely unknown but he burst on the scene all of a sudden, and his ministry became so great that people would come from 90 and 100 miles in all directions to hear him. Thousands were being baptized because he said imminently, immediately now, a Savior is going to come. Well, he came at a time of great poverty. He came at a time of great disease, of demon possession, of foreign occupation, of oppression by illiterate Carthaginians and Dacians and Cappadocians and the mercenaries of the Roman army. At a time of a minority religious clique, the Sadducees in control of the temple, a minority ultra-right-wing religious clique in the form of the Pharisees, who were the largest religious body, a group of Essenes sitting off in their caves with all of their ideas and so on, but with an irreligious majority in the nation of Judea of that time, and with an incredible, incredible amount of disease, as we can see easily by reading the gospel accounts of how many of the sick and the demoniac, the blind and the deaf and the dumb were brought to Jesus Christ to be healed. John the Baptist didn't have the faintest idea what was going to happen to him. 
And so it is that we read in the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew of how finally when John's ministry had begun to gradually decrease, even as he himself prophesied that it would, he said, I must decrease, but he that cometh after me, the latchet of whose shoe I'm not worthy to unleash, uh, shall increase. What did John mean by decrease? I think John meant by that that the time was going to come when his ministry would be over. And probably he would be able to go back out to the Arabah, and probably he would be allowed to live out his remaining years in peace. And probably that would be the end of John the Baptist. Jesus would become far more notorious, far more famous, far greater in the scope of his ministry. And there would be no need for John the Baptist to say the Messiah is coming once the Messiah had already appeared. But what did he really expect would happen to him? We get a few clues in the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew when it says it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Remember, some of his disciples left his ministry at the beginning of Christ's ministry. That included Andrew as Peter's brother and perhaps Peter himself. It included several others who became members of Christ's disciples who previously had been John's disciples. And they said unto him, Are you he that should come, or do we go look for somebody else? Analyze that question. Why did they put it that way? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again, not for the first time, but again, those things which you hear and see. He didn't answer him by bluster. He didn't answer him by saying, of course I am. He didn't answer by trotting out his personal credentials. He didn't answer by a lot of arguments or rhetoric. He said, you watch and see what is being done. Look at the miracles. Look at the works. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So he pointed to the works that were being done, and then made a strange statement. And blessed is he, still talking to John's disciples, whosoever shall not be offended in me, offended by me. You know what happened to John, of course. We could read it, but I won't turn to the 14th chapter of Matthew. If you want to refresh your memory, you can hear about Herod the Tetrarch and how he was talking about John the Baptist and Herodias and how John the Baptist said that he cannot have Philip's wife. Well, John the Baptist was commissioned from the time prior to his birth by the Annunciation of the Archangel Gabriel to be a prophet without peer. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said of John the Baptist, There has not been a man born of a woman that is any greater. Nevertheless, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. It also says John did no miracle, and John never spoke in tongues, and yet there was never a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But John did not have the faintest idea what was to happen to him at the end of his life. He is now in prison because he has come to the attention of the leaders of the country. And in preaching his doctrine, cry aloud, spare not, show my people their sins, someone came to him because he was looked upon as a leader of the people. And therefore, a person who was able to sway an enormous amount of public opinion. He was looked upon by the incumbent in office as a person who controlled an awful lot of public sentiment and therefore perhaps part of the vote, if voting had been something by which that incumbent was retained in office. 
All sorts of people are making all sorts of gushy statements about Pat Robertson. When the so-called six-pack of the Republican nominees, candidates for the nomination of the Republican Party got together for their little mishmash down in Houston, a couple of them couldn't refrain from very, very uh, laughingly thanking Pat Robertson for bringing all of the Christian constituency, including some of the Christian fundamental Democrats, into the Republican Party. It's quite interesting. None of them take him seriously. Yet this man has given up a so-called Christian ministry and wants to be the chief executive of the United States of America and the chief, the commander-in-chief of the United States Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps, when all of his known life he's been preaching, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Do good to men that persecute you and hate you. So on. Pray for them who despitefully use you. and So on and so on. But be that as it may, people look upon him as able to deliver an awful lot of opinion. And that represents a certain amount of power. If a man has influence, they look upon him as being able to deliver a lot of votes. John the Baptist was sought to in much the same way as ancient kings of Israel would seek to a prophet and say, even as the king did to Jeremiah when he was in the slime pit, have you heard any late word from the Lord? Because they thought maybe John was in communication with God. And because the man had a guilty conscience, he wanted to know about whether or not it was okay to go ahead with this marriage. And John said, it is sin. You may not have Philip's wife. So, of course, we know about Herodian or the dance. and We know about the delivery of the head of John the Baptist on the charger. And John the Baptist was beheaded in prison. Now, while he's in jail awaiting this horrific sentence, he hears about the great public ministry of Jesus Christ. People are talking about healings and thousands, 5,000 here and 6,000 and 10,000 people. And John, being a human being, is quite perplexed. He's quite disturbed. He wonders, but where is he? Why doesn't he come to me? Why does not he send someone to me? Why does not an angel come and break my shackles and let me out of this dungeon? So two of his disciples who were allowed to visit him are sent with an urgent message. And when they get there, they cannot help but deliver a little bit of John's, perhaps, shall we say, hurt or disillusionment. And so they say, are you he that should come or do we go look for somebody else? Jesus got exactly what they meant. So he said, you go show John all of the works that are being done. And then said, as a final rejoinder, as the men turned to leave, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now he picks up on that theme and he continues about those who should not be offended by judging with the seeing of their eye what they see Jesus doing. As they departed, the disciples are still there, and the multitudes, the crowd to which Jesus had been ministering, and he said in verse 7, Well, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with a wind, or a very strong, powerful character? Someone who is willy-nilly, who just seemingly bends with every wind like a, uh, an aspen leaf? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment, someone who is very much of a fleshy appetite, who gives in to all kinds of passions of the flesh? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say unto you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. 
Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now we can understand perhaps this scripture a little more easily. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. John the Baptist had been seized. His disciples scattered to the winds. He had been violently clapped in prison. He is awaiting a death sentence. And the violent take it, that is its representatives, John and Jesus Christ, by force. There is no possible way in the good green earth by any type of exegesis that anyone can understand that someone who is violent reaches out and seizes or takes the kingdom of God. Actually, the, the verse is somewhat obscured in the King James English. It is speaking of John as well as Jesus Christ, both of whom, of course, we know were martyred. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He continues on the same theme, meaning, Blessed is he that shall not be offended in me. Whereunto shall I like in this generation? It's like unto children sitting in the markets. Now, children sitting in the markets are children unemployed, children apart from their parents, children with time on their hands, merely people watching. They're simply sitting there talking, whiling away the day, sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. You don't dance to our tune. You don't fit our mold. Jesus once talked about putting a new patch on an old garment to illustrate the same point. Then he goes on to clarify. For John came abstemious, neither eating nor drinking, locusts, wild honey. He never touched a drop of wine or strong liquor or beer in his entire life. And they said, he must be demon-possessed. He must have a devil. Son of man, on the other hand, came eating and drinking. Drinking what? Eating what? Why, wonderful food at a banquet, at a wedding feast, when he changed water into wine. And they say, total, total lie, untrue, behold, a man gluttonous. He ate a normal amount of food. He drank a normal amount of wine. He was never remotely even close to uh, drunk or affected by the wine that he drank any more than a glass or so would affect anyone else at a long two or three hour meeting or a dinner or something like that, a wedding feast. So they called him a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. And then he began to upbraid these cities and said, Woe unto you, Chores, and woe unto you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes and began to chide them for their hard-headedness and their hard-heartedness. John the Baptist didn't have the faintest idea he was going to be martyred. There was no prophecy that had been uttered to him or to his parents that the end of his life was going to be by an ignominious death, actually being decapitated by a huge sword of some sort. No doubt, being a human being, he feared that horrible death. No doubt, being alone in prison, there were moments when he began to wonder, well, where is the Messiah? Why doesn't he come to relieve me? Because John the Baptist had been preaching an immediate, imminent, now message that judgment and the kingdom of God and justice and equity and peace 
was going to break out and the Messiah was the one who was going to bring it. John the Baptist had no more the concept that he was the forerunner for the humble carpenter of Nazareth who was going to come for three and a half years and then himself be martyred and then another thousand, two thousand years go by for this earth to go on as it has. And then finally Christ come the second time. John knew nothing of that. John merely felt from all the prophecies that he could read in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to come who was a deliverer who would establish the kingdom of God and he preached the message of the kingdom of God. Prepare the way of the eternal. Get everybody back to the laws of God. Get back to the religion of the code that Moses gave on Mount Sinai. Clean up your lives. Clean up your house. Clean up your act and so on. And bring forth proof and uh, fitting or proving that you have repented. John was not gifted with a centuries-long perspective down through history so that he could see his own involvement in the context of his time. I saw my father, Herbert W. Armstrong, for literally decades whipping up audiences as if they had but a very few years in this society and that the coming of Jesus Christ was just around the corner. And he thought that that was exactly what was going to happen. I remember in the 1950s, we said that NATO is going to collapse, a United States of Europe is going to emerge, ten nations are going to come together in Europe, and finally the United States is going to be attacked by some of the same enemies that we vanquished in World War II. The Great Tribulation will begin, and then of course here's all the biblical scenario of the heavenly signs and the day of the Lord and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Nice little scenario was worked out by a man named Herman Hay, who began to interpret Leviticus the 26th chapter with the four successive periods of seven years punishment as being related to a 19-year cycles theory, which I exploded in the, in the mid-1960s. And you could do it tomorrow if you want to merely look up the article under calendar or look up cycles having to do with various observations in astronomy and look up the metonic cycle, that it is imperfect, that it is not an absolute perfect 19-year cycle, in which, as my father alleged, because he didn't get it straight, what Herman Hay told him, that every 19 years all the sun, the moon, and the stars come together in exact position every 19 years, just like a perfect Swiss watch, not so. Astronomers know that the stars are gradually moving away at blinding speed, but because they're so vastly out there, you can't really see it or perceive it with the eye. And it takes years even for astronomers to realize they have moved from one position to another. But be that as it may, the metonic cycle is itself imperfect and must be readjusted. But according to that cycle, over 19 years for the preaching of the gospel from the time of the establishment of the church in June, about the 18th of June in 31 A.D., until the gospel was first preached in Europe when the Apostle Paul saw a young man from Macedonia saying, come over hither, and the gospel went to Europe. And because my father started on the first February, first Sunday in February of 1934, and the very first Sunday in 1953, the gospel began to go out over Radio Luxembourg to all of Europe, he saw an exact parallel, even 119-year cycles. So many things began to work out. The date of his ordination, the date of his baptism, the date of certain things that happened in the church. And we even got off into numerology. A man named Gerald Waterhouse even began to investigate the meaning of numbers on a baggage ticket. 
uh, it was really interesting the way we had it all worked out. You could take a chalkboard and a piece of chalk in your hand and stand up there and speculate that if Christ were going to come by the Feast of Trumpets in 1975, you simply work back through the three and one half years of the Tribulation, Heavenly Signs, and Day of the Lord to January of 1972, which is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. You work backwards from that, you got exactly 19 years to the beginning of the Gospel going to Europe in 1953. And it all fits so beautifully. So by 1965, we used to tell people out of the pulpit in Big Sandy, the bodies were so, supposed to be so deep at the crossroads of major cities and towns in the United States from the terrible plagues of wild animals and of disease and of cholera and diphtheria and scarlet fever and diseases that we knew of then that we don't hear much about now. We didn't know about AIDS back then. We didn't know about herpes back then. We didn't know about... Uh, the tremendous incidence of Americans with heart disease and emphysema and multiple sclerosis and all of the cancers like leukemia back in the 50s. We hadn't heard very much about that yet. I began to become suspicious by about 1965 when that didn't happen. I won't go through the laborious story that I've gone through before about going to Petra and my famous sermon that got me in trouble in Brickett Wood in 1966 on the Day of Atonement that we were not going to go to Petra by 1972 or the terrible trouble I got in thereafter when I would insist that the 19-year cycles were not true, that this wasn't going to work out that way, but just let me just point to history. This is 1987. This is Tyler, Texas. The little chart that I had in my Bible, which I think long since fell out from lack of use. Yes, it's gone. There's where I had it pasted in. Uh, only went up to 1982 because I had it figured out that was the end of the times of the Gentiles. So since Christ was going to be on the earth by 1975, can you believe in 1969, 70, 71, when many people thought that January of 1972 was the great event? Then when I heard and read a letter that said all of that was fulfilled by the opening of the biggest door that had been, ever been opened to the work of God in the history of the work, that we could place ads about the Spirit in man in Reader's Digest. Now, if I lost you somewhere, don't worry. Don't worry. That lost me, too. That really lost me a little bit at that point in time. That somehow we still believed in the 19-year cycles, and somehow they'd still been fulfilled. Instead of saying, oops, we goofed, and just, you know, face it. Just say, well, we were wrong. You know, that Herman Hay was wrong. I was wrong. We were all wrong. It was just wrong. That's all. We, we were a little ahead of our time. But unfortunately, that was never done. And I think it just sort of swept under the carpet. Nobody even talks about it. I'm probably a, a real Bolshevist for standing up here talking about it. I'll get myself in hot water with some people in the CGI, I imagine, for resurrecting ancient uh, skeletons. But nevertheless, it is part of my personal history. And I have to view statements I make today with the enormous caution in the back of my mind of decades of hearing wolf, wolf. So I'm very cautious when I start talking about world affairs. But on the other hand, I do want to remind us that someday, at some point in time, not too distant in the immediate future, these great events of biblical prophecy are going to take place. John the Baptist had his ministry come to an end very, very suddenly. He was deeply hurt by what was about to happen to him.
He perhaps made a mistake in some of his attitudes when he sent to ask Jesus Christ, Are you he? If so, it is implied, you would be here and you would be helping me and relieving me because John the Baptist did not know that he'd been selected to be one of God's martyrs. The work that we are doing today is a work of witness and of warning. And believe it or not, there is no other work like it. In the first place, there is no work which is willing to acknowledge its decades-long mistakes. In the second place, there is no work that I feel has a direct commission from Almighty God, an anointing, if you will, from God for the fulfillment of the great commission of Jesus Christ to the church. In the third place, this work is not interested in religious entertainment or of articles that are more like pablum than they are two-fisted, hard-hitting, straight-from-the-shoulder, pulling no punches, talking about, yes, the Pope is the false prophet, yes, the Vatican will be moved to Jerusalem, yes, another temple will likely be built there, yes, there is going to come a time of great tribulation on the United States of America when over two-thirds of our citizens finally will be killed, when only a third will be saved alive, and they will be scattered among all over countries to perhaps a 10% remnant will finally be brought back to Palestine at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there are those who want to pull their punches to appeal to the majority in a numbers game of continually talking about the size of their mailing list, of the number of new people brought into the church, and are measuring the effect of their work in terms of size and dollar volume. But God never measured his work that way. When the original Elijah thought he was all alone... God had to show him not by a mighty thunder or a roaring tornado, but by a still, small voice. And then the voice of the angel that said, There are all of these thousands who have never bowed to Baal that I have who are going to be a part of the cadre that will do my work. Elijah was ready to quit. Elijah asked God to take his life. Elijah thought, what is the use? It's completely futile. The whole world is lost in rank paganism and sin. And God had to show Elijah that there were more that stood with him than those who were against him. Elijah was allowed to be taken as a tired person to a kind of a retirement. We know that he was caught up and taken to another place and, quote, was not found, meaning people were seeking after him. But along came a person that Elijah never suspected would follow on his heels, named Elisha. And the work of God had to continue for who knows how many decades after the work of Elijah was done. I know that previously people thought the work of Elijah was in fact the work of my father. Herman Hay stood in the pulpit up in Oregon clear back in the late 1940s and stated publicly that my father was the Elijah who was to come. Was he? No. No, it was not. People virtually stake their lives on the fact my human father would be alive until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Do not stake your religious beliefs on the idea that Garner Ted Armstrong will be alive in this flesh until Jesus Christ comes. Can I make that statement to go down in history, tape recorded where you can throw it up to me five years from now, right here and now, on tape recording devices, and on a videotape as well, which can catch my expression. Your salvation does not depend upon my life. 
It is not pinned or connected to my life. I am a voice in a wilderness of religious confusion. I am a voice shouting a message, a witness, and a warning. I believe there is a commission involved. I believe there is a work to do, which is why I personally refuse to be bogged down in organizationalism, why I refuse to be bogged down in localitis, as some people prefer to call it, where continually when disputes or arguments or doctrinal disagreements or hurt feelings or bruised egos become involved, I want to ask, but what has that to do with the stock market crash? Oh, you mean you've got hurt feelings? Does that mean Germany is not going to reunite? That's the way I put it. I know it sounds stupid. Pardon me for saying that. People have their feelings hurt. Something's happening in a local church. Oh, does that mean America is not going to be attacked? Shall we abandon the work we've been called to do and become embroiled in endless entanglements in our own little organization? That's not where I'm coming from. That's not what I have been called to do. Believe it or not, and I do believe it is going to come an awful lot sooner than a lot of us think, this civilization as we know it is tottering on its very last legs. All of the prophecies that talk about those brought up in purple or in scarlet, put the two words together, or those who will throw the gold and the silver out to the bats and the moles, and those who were brought up in purple and scarlet shall embrace dunghills, is soon to occur in the United States of America. And it may literally occur in the early 1990s. There are many economists who are of the opinion that we are about to slip by default into a Great Depression, where we're going to see 12, 13, 15 percent and more unemployment in the United States. And in a nation now so totally different than the one of the 1930s, of the Judeo-Protestant Christian ethic, the work ethic of a different society than ours today, in a society of racism, of drugs, of absolute no-holds-barred, sexual, licentious, libertine doctrine of do whatever you want to, I believe that the scenario pictured by Philip Wiley in his book of about 20-some years ago of riotous gangs going from neighborhood to neighborhood to take forcibly from neighbors out of their freezers and refrigerators the dwindling means of survival of rape and murder and mass murder in small-town communities where Americans are killing Americans for the scant means of survival is a scenario which is very, very likely to happen inside the United States. Now, that is not a pretty picture, but there are absolutely beautiful and pretty pictures depicted in the Bible about those who are involved in God's work and of what is going to happen at the end of it all, which is why my father was so right when he said continually that those who put down roots in this life and who looked upon the physical, material things they could accumulate they looked upon bank accounts and material possessions and longevity of physical life were banking on the wrong things. But they had to realize that we are like the Bora trekkers that went up into uh, the South African hinterland and discovered the diamonds up at Kimberley. That we're like the pilgrims aboard the ships coming into Plymouth. That we're like some of those intrepid souls in ox carts and wagons on the Oregon Trail that we are in fact pilgrims, pioneers, and sojourners who have no certain dwelling place in this world, but look for something fantastically different that is yet to come.
Chapter 4 of the book of Malachi says, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. He shall go forth, you shall go forth, and grow up, and nothing is more peaceful than that picture, as calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. Remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and Christ said he came, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Eternal. And this has been so totally misunderstood. But even the Jamison, Fawcett, and Brown critical and experimental commentary makes it clear, as do some others. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Luke says it somewhat differently, and I'll turn quickly to the first chapter of the book of Luke. Verse 16, speaking of John the Baptist, Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. What children? The children of Israel. And he shall go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by a son, God who previously had spoken unto us by the fathers. Hebrews 1.1 and what did the rich man say in Luke 16 when he saw the wall of fire advancing? Father Abraham called him father. Say not, said John the Baptist, we have Abraham to our father. Many people have thought how ludicrous that the great vast ministry of a latter-day Elijah was to repair families, to heal the breach between fighting husbands and wives. To restore a father to a child and get them to communicating together. When in fact it is to restore the children of Israel, who are the citizens of Tyler, Houston, and Dallas, to the truth of God as delivered through Moses at Mount Horeb, the Ten Commandments of God, the statutes, the judgments, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Days of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the laws of God that are completely lost to all of our citizens in all of these countries of Northwestern Europe, of Scandinavia, of England, the United States, who are, in fact, a part of the children of Israel. To turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. Can you find people walking up and down the streets of Tyler today who know their father is Abraham, that their father is Isaac and Jacob, that their fathers were Noah, that their fathers were people listed in the great uh, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews that lists people like Samson and Jephthah and Barak and Deborah and so many others who... It says, died in faith, not having received the promises. No, they do not know that the great prophets of the Old Testament of Elijah, of Elisha, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zephaniah, and here Malachi, are their fathers. And that they're the latter-day progeny of God's people Israel, gone completely astray and apart from His laws. They simply do not know it. What then is one key element of the message of a latter-day Elijah but the knowledge of who are the children of Israel. 
and the message of who are the fathers and the turning of those children to the message of those fathers. I have that written so you can read that if you would like. That's not the subject that I wanted to bring today. But nevertheless, believe it or not, that is a part of the message that is to go out. I'm going to turn to Zephaniah in concluding. The book of Zephaniah, actually, the whole book, is a, a book that actually portrays the reestablishment of Israel, the coming of the kingdom of God, and the setting up of the kingdom of God when Christ is finally on this earth. Beginning in verse 1 of the first chapter of Zephaniah, the great day of the eternal it is near. It is near and hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the eternal and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of God's wrath. For those, any of us, any of those in my hearing, who once in a great while are tempted to put their emphasis on those material things, let me tell you, you can't have enough gold. You can't have enough silver. You can't have enough dollars or Reichsmarks or Deutschmarks as they're called today. You can't have enough jewelry. You can't have enough meat in your freezer. You can't have enough stored food to see you through the tribulation and the day of the Lord. No wonder Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then said through the prophet, In the day that I make up my jewels, talking about the people who have repented and turned to God that he is going to save and make a part of his family and a part of his governing ruling kingdom. It simply will not do us a bit of good to get our priorities down into this world and to certainly be detracted by momentary upheavals, crises of leadership, or whatever it might be in the little organization called the Church of God International. He says, the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy, a speedy riddance of all of them that dwell in the land. Chapter 2, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the eternal's anger come upon you. And how do you do that? Seek ye the eternal, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment, Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. It just might be you will make it through all of these horrible times to come. If that is your emphasis, that's a pretty good argument for placing the emphasis on spiritual things and on quality of character and on humility and on meekness. Notice how that is continually emphasized on judgment, keeping Almighty God's Ten Commandments as magnified by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount rather than any of the material values that people tend to put their attention upon. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. And I want to finally conclude by Luke 21. That is the chapter, of course, that is the parallel of Matthew 24 and of Mark 13, which is the Olivet Prophecy that talks of all of these tumultuous times to come. 
And he says in verse 36, Watch you therefore. I took the title of our magazine from this scripture. It is called 20th Century Watch because we watch what is happening, hopefully, through the eyes and through the perspective of God's prophecies in the Bible. Watch you, therefore, and pray always, without ceasing, never stopping your prayers. Sometimes people drift away in prayer. And the more you don't pray, the more you tend not to pray. The harder it is to getting back to prayer. But if God hears nothing but great long silences from you in heaven above, and you're not communicating to God, it's very difficult to claim His promises, and to claim His blessings, and to claim His protection, and to claim that He will hide you in the day of God's wrath. That you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. If it were not for those great promises... Everything I see in every magazine I pick up would scare me witless. I would not see any future for my precious little grandson if all I believed in was the great debacle that the United States of America is going to go through in the very next few years. If it were not for these promises that I bank upon, that I can take to the bank, no matter how much we could accumulate materially, I wouldn't have any hope for the future whatsoever. But if I can focus my attention on this scripture, pray always, watch, be alert, assess and appraise, be aware, be involved, be active, be relevant to what is going on, that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. And all these things are the things of wars and droughts and famines and earthquakes and the great pestilential things that are going to happen during the tribulation, if you read back in the preceding verses. And to stand before the Son of Man, as I pointed out for years, dual salvation, if you will. Material, physical preservation and spiritual salvation. And I want them both. I would not be very happy to be told that I'm going to suffer the end that John the Baptist suffered. I don't think John the Baptist was. I think that for a time he became quite depressed. I think he was quite downcast. I think that's why he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, why aren't you here? Why aren't you getting me out of prison? But if this work is a work which in some shadowy way is characterized by the message of John the Baptist, I do not know what the end of this one chapter of God's work on this earth in the long decades in which he has witnessed and warned the American, the British, and other peoples is going to be. Whatever that end is, I will continue to use Luke 21:36 as the watchword, as the hallmark, as the one scripture to really zero in on and pay attention to because I so value what might happen to my children, to my grandson, and in the years just ahead that I know without that hope, are going to be some of the most horrible years we've ever suffered. Worse than the darkest days in February 1942, when the Japanese Empire had gone all the way to the Morrisby, Port Morrisby bombing and so on. I won't go into all of that, but it had taken half a New Guinea. But I think we're headed for that time. And I think 1988-89 may see us slip into a depression. And I think that runaway interest, and I think high unemployment, and all those terrible things are going to smite the American economy. I hope I'm wrong. All I'm doing is telling you what I'm reading in the magazines, by the way. I didn't have an angel appear to me last night. I really didn't. Uh, all I know is what I read in the papers. And that's all you know. And I think I 
uh, and, and touching a nerve because I think a lot of people feel, as I do, that if something doesn't change, and I'm not seeing the kind of leadership, but the funny thing is, as I read to you, even if I did see the kind of leadership, if I'd seen Ronald Reagan begin to implement fireside chats, if he'd actually come out and said, ignominiously, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, I'm still not sure there's anything the man could do about it. I think the die is cast. And I think we're on the way down. So I think that I will continue to bank on God, on His work, His church, my calling, my commission, what I have to do in there in that office before the cameras and microphones, and not on the materialistic, soon-to-evaporate values of this present world.